Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and start class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to study. Enlighten our minds. Fill our hearts with your goodness. Uh, We have members in our class who are struggling with illness uh, and and health problems. We pray that your healing hand be upon them in accordance with your will. And uh, we pray that you will continue to open avenues, that this message will go forward so that the world will be lighted and we can all be restored to perfect health and unity with you when you come. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number five in our quarterly, Growing in Christ. And the title of this lesson is Growing in Christ. Somebody read the memory text for us, which is Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in it. Colossians 2.15. When you hear this text that he made a public spectacle, triumphing over the principalities and powers, exposing them, what, what, what do you think it means? Well, the lesson in the first paragraph states, Jesus has defeated satanic powers and evil forces. Through Christ, victory over these powers, including their past manifestations in a person's life, is possible. And finally, there are conditions in order for these victories to be realized in a person's experience. When you hear that, what do you think? Well, what are the principalities? What are the principalities? What are the powers of the principalities? How did Jesus expose them? How did he triumph over them? How did he disarm them? Yeah. When do you have a comment? Well, the, the principalities of this world are the principalities of Satan and, his, and the adversary who, who is the prince of this world. And he, he controls us by his lies. Okay, okay. So by Christ exposing the lies of Satan to not be correct about God, he has... He has and victory over those lives. I, I like very much where you're going with this. Any other comments? His power is not to deceive. Satan, the power of the, of the evil one is the power to deceive. Oh, very good. Well said. Um, what do you think the lesson means in this phrase? Through Christ, victory over these powers, including their past manifestations in a person's life, is possible. See, at first I thought, well, maybe they're trying to say victory over habits, addictions, patterns of sinful living. But that would actually be ongoing struggles in a person's life, not past manifestations. You follow what I'm saying? If if I need a victory, I'm still addicted. I need a victory now. If I'm already free of the addiction, then I don't need victory from it. I'm free. So that's a past. I'm not sure. What do you think it meant, Wendell? To me, it's, it's an issue of we've all made mistakes, and sometimes we relive those. Oh. We have more power over us because we keep reliving our, uh, our mistakes and failures rather than living in the power of Christ's victory today. Oh, so in our own head, we're beating ourselves up, living under guilt and shame and, and, and ruminations about past shortcomings. And Okay, I like that. I think that's a good understanding of that. Um, and, and yeah, I, th- I like that very much. Any other comments? Is that what you were going to say? I resonate with that. You resonate with that? Okay. I think we all resonate with that, don't we? Yeah. So let's look at the memory text, which is uh, Colossians uh, 2.15, but let's take it in a little more context, starting in verse 8 of Colossians 2, and let's go through these verses in a little detail to kind of see what, this, what the principalities are, what the victory is, and what it means. So verse 8, 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So if you, if you start, we start with this passage, it says, don't be taken captive through. So what is it, or what does it mean to be taken captive? According to this text. Captive is a slave. Yeah, but, but in this text, or maybe I should say, how is one taken captive in this text? What are the things that bind you or tie you? Is it chains? Are you taking pact with physical change? Is that what it's talking about here? In your mind. Mentally, in, in your mentally mind. chained up by the lies and distortions about what the truth really is versus that you've been deceived about what it really is. Right. So notice what we have here that's taking us captive. We have deceptive, deceptions, lies, philosophies, okay? Human traditions and basic principles of this world. These things are what take us captive. Well, you've, you've identified very nicely the lies, the distortions, the false constructs about God. But what do you think it means, the basic principles of this world? Principles of government. And what are the basic principles of this? Selfishness. Selfishness. So it's not just lies, is it? Right. How about pride? Can that take you captive? Mm-hmm. Lust addictions that have nothing to do with being lied to. It has this, this basic principle of the world, self-gratification, self um, exaltation, self first. So he's saying both areas can take you captive. Be careful. Don't be taken captive by deceitful philosophies, traditions of men, or the base principles of this world. Yeah. I think that's what I think. I mean, he nailed it all right there, didn't he? Yeah. And so if you think about that, then when you identify them for what they are, what are the weapons being used to? To bait us. I like to throw, I'll have to bait, see if you'll bite the bait, take the hook, and get taken captive. What are the weapons that are used to take us captive? Can you name any specifics? Advertising. Advertising, okay. Can advertising take you captive? Marketing. How about friends? I have patients all the time. Why did you start smoking marijuana? A friend gave it to me. Why did you start doing Oxycontin? Hydros. Uh, a friend gave it to me. Were they really friends? No, but I mean, this, this, people can influence people, right? Yeah. So when we understand what the weapons are, lies we talked about, distortions, uh, our selfishness in the heart, other when we understand the weapons, does it give us any insight as what it might mean to disarm the weapons or the powers? We're disarming the powers that take us captive. Christ is, we're not, but Christ is disarming the powers that take us captive. Now we've identified what those powers are. What, what would be necessary to disarm them? Well, verse 8 gives us insight into that as we, as we talked about that. Okay, and so somebody says truth. Truth disarms the lies. So, verse 9 and 10. Tells us what this might look like, I think. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. What's important to note in this section? Jesus is God, full and complete. Notice that, number one. He's not a lesser deity. He's not a sub-deity. He's not a created being. I mean, There's an attack going on in Christianity right now on the divinity of Christ and on the Trinity. It's very aggressive. 
And if he's and if he's not fully God, we don't know that God would really sacrifice himself for us. We know that God would sacrifice somebody else to protect himself if he's not fully God. You see? A huge point here. Uh, what we see in, so, but, and, and also, we don't know what God is like. But since he is fully God, we, we know that what we see in Jesus is true of God. You see, this is powerful. And because Jesus became human, we are given fullness or health or restoration via what Christ has done for us and what we can now achieve through our unity with Christ, what he does in us. Amen. Notice verse 11 and 12, how we are given this fullness. In him, you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Kind of symbolic language here, but think through. What does it mean? What does it mean? What's actually being described? Is what's being described here a legal accounting of one's historic record books in heaven being scrubbed by the blood of Christ? No. No, what's the action? It's it's metaphorical, but where's the focus of the action taking place? Inside the human heart. Notice that. This is powerful. So where is Christ working? Inside the human mind and heart to restore us back into his image. Yeah, we kind of touched on this last week, but somebody emailed me this week and said, and asked, what is Christ doing in the heavenly sanctuary right now? Mm-hmm. Would this particular passage actually inform us of what Christ is doing in the heavenly sanctuary? Mm-hmm. Does it have any bearing on that, or do we miss it? Hmm. Christ is doing something inside the hearts and minds of believers. You've already said that. Would, would, would we say the circumcision by Christ of your heart could also be called a cleansing of the heart? Absolutely. Would that be a, a, an abuse of, of or would that be a right understanding? Okay, a cleansing of the heart and mind. Are we not the temple of God where he dwells? So then, is this not a cleansing of the temple? And a cleansing of the sanctuary. The a cleansing of the sanctuary, Exactly. Or is the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary somehow unrelated to the work of Christ cleansing the heart and mind? Or is there a direct connection? Direct connection. When people, when people talk about Christ cleansing the records in heaven, what do they generally, usually mean? Historically, in, 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 in the, your upbringing and your teaching in school, sermons you've heard, what is historically being described about cleansing the records in heaven. What does it usually mean? Erasing them. Erasing the record of sin recorded in some type of recording device. Um, Really good parchment in heaven. Um, Can we do a better job of describing that? What is the way, so let me ask you this. What is the method, the way God goes about cleansing the heavenly records? The avenue through which he must go to get at those records. He has to get the record is is merely a picture of who we are. See what she said? See, the record is a a reflection, a recording. I think uh, what I would say is it is a direct copy of your individuality and identity. Your individuality and identity is perfectly stored and recorded in heaven. It's a backup copy, if you will, of you, the person. And the way that that your record of, of you in heaven gets cleansed is by letting God cleanse your character here. If you don't, pardon? Wait, wait. If you don't like that description, then use it as a medical record. 
It's a perfect medical record describing your exact condition. And the way we change medical records is by providing the proper treatment to the patient. And as the patient's vital signs improve and, and healing takes place, the medical record reveals that change. And so the way God cleanses the record in heaven is by cleansing the heart and mind of sinners on earth. Verse 13, Verse 13. we're going to get into it. Just a second. <laughs> we're almost there. But that's it. Okay, so go ahead and read it for us then. Go. The second half says that God made you alive with Christ. There, so, when, when you, so re, read 13 to 15 for us. You were once dead because of your failures and your uncircumcised corrupt nature, but God made you alive with Christ when he forgave all our failures. He did this by erasing the charges that were brought against us by the written laws of God had established. He took the charges away by nailing them to the cross. He stripped the rulers and authorities of their power and made a public spectacle of them as he celebrated his victory in Christ. What version? God's word. God's word. This good. Yeah, and this is, uh, this is NIV. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, what does it all mean? We were dead in sin and uncircumcision of our sinful nature. What does it mean? We were under a death sentence. No. Do you know this? The traditional, the, the traditional interpretation of this verse is we were under a death sentence. We were on death row in the heavenly prison. And God would have to take us out and execute us. That's what this would traditionally mean. Would it not traditionally mean this? Yes. yes but that's not what it means, is it? Terminal disease. We were terminal. Our condition, our actual heart is alien to the way God built life to operate. We're not operating on the principles upon which life is constructed, and thus we're terminal. We're dying. We're, we're, we're going we're to cease to exist. So it's describing the actual condition of being rather than a legal predicament, and it means living out of harmony for God's dis- de- design for life. Having selfishness as the primary motivator of action in the heart rather than love is what it's describing here. So God sent Christ to take our condition in order to cure it, in order to cure it. But there's another level of understanding of Christ canceling the written code, and it has to do with having canceled the fallen way the written code was used. In his book, Healing the Gospel, Radical Vision for Grace, Justice, and the Cross, Derek Flood describes how God ordained various entities and structures and, or elements, and these entities became fallen. For instance, God ordained families. Families became fallen, and families do a lot of abuse, and, and people are crushed sometimes in families uh, because they're not operating as God designed them to operate. And God came to redeem not just the individuals, but also the family structure, so families operate as God designed them to. He talks about your conscience, how God developed a man with a healthy conscience, but the conscience can become perverted, and people can suffer under unreasonable and irrational guilt. And God wants to cleanse and heal the conscience. So he talks about these various structures of society that have been perverted by evil as well, not just the individual hearts of men. And Christ comes to put the whole nature, if you will, the whole, the whole system back in harmony with, with God. So he writes this. 
To speak of the law only as abolished and destroyed does not take into account the large purpose of restorative justice, which ultimately seeks to restore these systems to serve their proper role under Christ. Second, at the, to- at the same time, especially because of the church's history of collusion with abusive power, we dare not whitewash over the New Testament's very real critique of the abuse of a religious authority exemplified in Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees and in Paul's critique of the law which the early church picked up on in the language of abolishing the powers. Just as we need to be self-aware and introspective, we also need to be aware of how authority can become fallen. As history shows, the church has not been particularly good at this, often defending the status quo rather than those on the margins. You're hearing what's being talked about. Church authority itself had become fallen. Well, fallen is Babylon. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, right? The churches are fallen. Christ wants to also cleanse the church too, doesn't he? Cleanse his bride. That we begin practicing the principles, not just as individuals, but corporately together we practice the the principles of God and show the truth about his kingdom. So the written code itself, given to help teach and lead people to a right knowledge of God, had become perverted and misused to misrepresent God, and it was actually damaging people by the time Christ came. Do you all see that? That system, that Old Testament system given by God to teach had become perverted and was harming people, closing minds. Thus the system had to be taken away and God's law put in its proper place, which is where? Where is the law supposed to be put? In the heart. Exactly right. Written on the heart and mind. And the organized church was to operate from God's methods of love, including loving one's enemies, which they did in the early church. Remember, they wouldn't fight. They went as martyrs. They loved their enemies. That's how the, the law was to be put in the heart and mind and the church was to operate in the law of love, not a hierarchical system governed by an emperor from Rome, which is, or from the general conference headquarters. Same, same problem. Yeah, that's not what it's supposed to be doing. So, we experience transformation by God as we repent and open the heart to him. He doesn't hold our shortcomings against us, if you notice. He's not holding them against us. It's very much like a doctor with a patient who's sick. And the patient who's sick is coughing and vomiting and spitting up blood. The doctor doesn't hold any of those symptoms against the patient, but recognizes them as evidence of the sickness the patient is struggling with and still seeks to heal that patient. You see, God doesn't hold our shortcomings against us, but still seeking to heal us. What about the cancel written code that was against us? What were the mindset of the people in Paul's day regarding the written code? How did they deal with it? What was it used for? Yes. It is Satan's accusations that were nailed to the cross. Accusations that we are not forgiven, that we are guilty of death, just like he is guilty of death. And as he's going to be destroyed, we need to be destroyed. Yeah, I like what you're bringing up. Because at the cross, Christ also nailed all the accusations and lies and distortions of the enemy were nailed to the cross too. Disarming him, we talked about. Exposing him. Um, the entire system... Oh, by the way, did the, ana- did the blood of animals achieve restoration to God? No. No. The entire system was a primitive method of teaching for primitive minds. It was a theater, a drama, a play, a, a little, a little a microcosm, an acting out, but it had deep visceral purpose, deep visceral purpose to bring sin and God's plan home to the heart. Flood in his book states the following. 
We cannot truly understand something when we observe it objectively from a distance. We understand it when it pounds in the chest, when it impacts us. We only truly know something when we are in the middle of it. These are vital matters of life and death that cannot be captured in a simplified formula, but must be articulated narratively and poetically as living ideas that move and touch at the core of of who we are. So, you you hear the kind of construct he's saying? We can't just go down and list a formula. Okay, we sin, we have a death penalty, Christ paid the penalty, we accept the penalty, blood payment to our behalf, we get forgiveness, stamp by our side, boom, we're saved. (laughs) A cold formula. He said, no, what's happening here is to touch the heart. You won't experience salvation until you experience the reality of what sin has done to you and then the freedom that you have in Christ. And so think about this Old Testament sacrificial system. If it would have pounded in your chest, if you, after, after sin, have to take a little lamb and you have to hold that little lamb and you have to look in its eye as it's looking up to you with those sweet eyes and you have to cut its throat. Will something be pounding in your chest as you do this? Will it make it very visceral and gut-wrenching real? See, this was part of the lesson of that system as well. And, and, and I think for some it worked. But for many, after doing this over and over and over and over, guess what happens? They become callous and they in, in, instead misconceptualize and they think God loves blood. And so David, when he, when, uh, you know, the day of his coronation and Solomon, the day of the, the temple dedication, when thousands of animals were slaughtered, the blood ran deep and they thought God lo- liked to see all this blood. But if you read the prophets, the minor prophets, Isaiah and others, he hates it. He hates the sacrifice of animals. He doesn't want it. He said, you know, he, what he, he, the sacrifice I do not pleasure in. It's a changed heart that I like. Did, the, did that experience, and you can imagine the gut-wrenching experience of what I just described with that little lamb and how you would go away weeping bitterly. Did that experience of, of slaughtering an animal in place of you, did that experience save you? No. That didn't save them. What did it do for them? It woke them up so they could reach out in a relation with God and experience salvation. Hey, I, I, that's sickening. I, I never want to go through that again. Change me, Lord. Change me. Create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. This was David's prayer. But the Jews forgot the purpose of the symbols, and they thought somehow they had merit in themselves. Thus, that system had to be taken away and replaced. It was nailed to the cross. The whole drama was put to an end at the cross. Go on to verse 15. Now, as we go on to verse 15, before we do, we finish up with verse 15, let's recap what we understand so far from what we've been reading. We are in a war waged in our own minds and hearts with weapons of deceit, distortion, Fear and selfishness, which promote methods of the world, survival of the fittest, principles of earthly governments projected onto God's government, seeing God running like our governments. It's, it's all these things taking our minds captive. When we believe God is like earthly governors, we are taken captive by evil forces and our healing is obstructed. I want to say that again. Get your mind. When we believe God operates like earthly governments, no. when we do, our minds are taken captive and our healing is obstructed. Absolutely. We're really debasing God when you do that. Exactly correct. Exactly correct. God battles with truth, love, freedom, and actual restoration achieved through Christ in order to heal and cleanse his universe. When we trust Christ, we experience actual transformation of heart and mind and have the worldly methods cut away, circumcised, and are renewed with God's law of love put in. We come to love God and others more than seeking to always protect self because we're afraid we won't get ours if we don't. The old system of symbols replaced with the reality of Christ. So that's where we are. Now let's look at verse 15. Thus in verse 15, how did Christ disarm the powers of evil triumphing over them? At the cross, 
love and selfishness stood face to face. Amen. Stood face to face at the cross. You see the two antagonistic principles and where they lead at the cross. You see in Christ, and this is what, what won the, the thief. Hey, he is a king, and how does he use his power? He gives for others. Hey, I can trust him. He doesn't operate like Rome does. If you're not on his good side, he'll, he'll, he'll whack you with, with power. No, he surrenders power to save others. He forgives his enemies. Hey, I can trust him. If, he, if, this, if, if his universe runs like that, that's the universe I want to be in. Yeah, I can trust him. Versus we see the satanic power mo- whipping the mob into a frenzy. Uh, I imagine if you saw that mob, it would be a horrible and hateful thing to see. Uh, they were screaming for the blood of Christ. Christ was revealed as love and Satan as selfish and malevolent. Death was revealed to come out from Satan and his methods, not from God. Everyone watching didn't see fire rain down from heaven and destroy Christ at the cross. Everyone watching saw Christ die of a broken heart, being abused by evil hatred, hatred and evil perpetrated upon him in his crucifixion and spitting and beating and all these things, and also as his father simply let him experience what he chose. And what did he choose? He, choo- he chose to go through the cross. He wasn't forced. He chose to go through the cross. Christ was revealed to be safe with all power, as was said earlier, because he never used the power to protect himself. Thus, Satan's lies about God abusing power were destroyed at the cross. Christ destroyed the infection of selfishness in humanity, in the humanity that he took upon himself, thus rewriting God's perfect law of love in the human species with the exercise of his own human brain at the cross. Christ's victory achieved by the exercise of his brain also revealed there was no nothing wrong with mankind when God created him in Eden, i.e., there was no manufacturer's defect. What happened to Adam wasn't because God somehow messed up in creating Adam. Adam was free to have made choices of loyalty and love, but he made other choices. And Christ revealed that by taking a humanity broken down by sin, weakened by sin, and choosing rightly all the way through. If he could do it in that humanity, Adam could have done it in a better humanity. Therefore, Satan's weapons of deceit were destroyed by the revelations of truth at the cross. His weapons of selfishness operating within the heart of man were destroyed by perfect love at the cross. Thus, Satan's methods were exposed as the source of suffering, pain, and death. Satan's power has been broken at the cross. Does this make sense? Yeah. All right, Sunday's lesson. First paragraph. Christianity is a religion of redemption in which people are saved from the devastation of sin through what someone else, in this case, Jesus has done for them. Thus, the Christian religion may be distinguished from a religion of law where one may rectify his or her doom by one's own efforts at doing good works. We need this redemption because according to the Bible, people without Christ are enslaved to sin and under a death sentence. They cannot free themselves from these two conditions. The sinner's plight requires outside intervention, and this intervention comes at a price. As the New Testament so clearly teaches, that price was the death of Jesus on the cross. I found this language, if you, hopefully you did too, very interesting. Because it's a mixture of healing language and legal language. They mix them together. Did you hear it? Yeah. Um, what does it mean that uh, people without Christ are enslaved to sin and under a death sentence? What does it mean? Does it mean that death sentence is a legal imposed punishment or that the death sentence is a terminal condition? 
That's what I think it means too, but that language could easily be misunderstood, couldn't it? In the term death sentence, I've always missed, uh, don't get that death sentence because the wages of sin is death. It means dying. It's a second death. It means it's permanent, that that's what's going to happen. But death sentence puts it so much in the legal aspect when we say that we're not legal, but we use that terminology. Yes, and in fact, uh, it's, it's not just that terminology. There are scenarios described. I've even seen plays acted out in church where they have a chair draped in black. As the, as, the, as the place of the execution chair where the sinner will be placed to be executed by God and Christ took his place in that, our place in that chair. Okay, so it's, it's not just the, the language, it's actually explicitly taught in many places that God must execute the sinner in order to be just. Well, that's what we're disabusing you of. That, that's not true. The, the, the condition itself, as the scripture teaches, is incompatible with life. Wage of sin is death. Sin when full grown brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Yes. When all of that kind of language instills fear and dread. And I often wonder why has Christianity insist upon instilling fear? Uh, uh, no, and, and you have just beautifully stated the, 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 the important difference it makes. To which way you see this? If you see it this way, it instills fear. Fear is the primary motivator for sin. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. And so now we have a th- the doctrine taught by churches that inflame the primary emotion of sin. Fear drives one to self-protection, self-preservation, self at all cost. Fear drives selfishness. Perfect love casts out all fear. So we have a serious problem in Christianity that Christianity teaches purposely doctrines that incite fear. I, I, and the reason they do it, you ask why they do it. My wife and I were at a church very near here um, one day, and uh, the pastor at the end of his sermon had an altar call. And he had actually done a nice sermon, generally nice sermon about the love of Christ, and just said, you know, I feel convicted if somebody hasn't given their love to Christ, their, their life to Christ, I want to just give a moment to, for you to come down and give your life to Christ. And I think two people came forward during that time. And I, you know, that was okay with me. He could have closed, but for some reason he felt a need not to close. And so he took a turn in his presentation and he then went down the track of, if you walk out of here today and haven't given your life to Christ and you get hit by a car, you know, uh, yeah, I don't want to, God, you know, if you haven't accepted Christ, then you will, re- re- you will experience the full punishment of God on sin and it will be a horrible punishment and it will be, you know, this kind of thing. What, 25, 30 people came forward? Coerced. That's coercion. Well, this is why they do it. This is why they do it. They use fear to motivate people to protect. They're, they're appealing to selfishness in the heart. And this is why the church has been so dysfunctional through the generations, because it's filled with people whose primary motive for being there is all about me, my salvation, my protection, get my sins paid for, go to confession so I don't have to feel guilty anymore, do my penance so I can be okay. It's all about me. We don't have a church that operates primarily from how can I give my life that others may live. How can I give of myself to, to promote health in the community? This is what God has created uh, humanity to be, and this is what the church is supposed to be, it seems to me, but we've got it kind of backwards, and this is what they use fear. Yeah. 
And the side effect of that that I see is people give up on God because they feel they, they cannot win with this kind of God and they harden their hearts and they become harder to reach by the love of God because the distortion has a solidifying effect about this is exactly right. This kind of message. And this is where this is what happened in Europe. Europe had a much bigger dose of this type of thing because of the, uh, the, 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 the Inquisition and the control of the church state power using these methods. And, and they're ahead of us by a couple of hundred years or maybe a hundred years. And that's why it's, it's, a, it's a post-religious world over there. People don't believe in God and they don't want God because the God that they don't believe in is this ugly thing that shouldn't be believed in. Now, that's, this is, is starting to happen in America now. And it's going to come. Fallen is fallen is Babylon, Remember? And all the little daughters have drank in the wine of the, of the great whore. Okay? And, and the wine of the great whore are these lies and ugly views about God. We have been blessed with a message to put God in his right light. The final message of mercy to lighten the world is the truth about God's character of love. Well, in the lesson, it has this sentence. The sinner's plight required outside intervention, and this intervention comes at a price. What comes to mind when you hear that? First off, does the sinner's plight require outside intervention? Yes. Absolutely. We couldn't fix it ourselves. Great truth in there. And did it Did it cost a lot? Yes. Absolutely. So you can hear this two different ways, really. The, the, the intervention necessary came at great cost to the one providing it, or there was a price demanded of this. And so think about a person in renal failure, dying of renal failure. Do they require outside intervention? Yes. Yes. And that intervention, if it comes with a donated kidney, does that come at a price? Now, is the price simply and only that the hospital administration requires medical bills to be paid? No. How about if they lived in a society in which all health care was provided at no financial cost, no no money exchanged, but they're still in renal failure and they need a kidney? Is that that still coming at a price? Yes. Is Is that how it is with the sinner? that the price to be paid is the price that our condition requires. Our condition requires it. We can't be restored without what was done. See, the paragraph points out that we are enslaved to sin. So if our salvation requires freedom from such enslavement, then Christ's death would have had necessarily provided that freedom. And we've already discussed that Christ revealed the truth which destroys the lies that frees our mind from the enslaved lies, but we're also enslaved by a carnal nature. And Christ developed or healed and developed a a new nature that we can be partakers of. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We can, as Christ said, drink uh, drink his blood and eat his flesh, eat his flesh, drink his blood. We can internalize Christ as the Holy Spirit and we get a new heart and right spirit. So is this... um, so who, to whom is this great price paid? No one. Ah, it's not true. To whom, who, let me, let me put it this way. If somebody's dying of renal failure and a kidney is donated, what is the price of that healing? The cost to the kidney, right? Somebody to give. Who gets the kidney paid to them? The sinner gets that kidney, don't they? Who gets the price of what Christ did paid to them? Who gets the truth paid to them? Who gets a new heart and right spirit paid to them? If you want to use the word paid, apply to, given to, gifted to, whatever you want to use instead of paid. But still, who gets it? We do. So think, think, think this through with me now. 
who is the only being in the universe who did not need truth presented to them? Jesus and also the Father, okay? The only being in the universe who didn't need the truth that Christ brought was the Father. As Wendell pointed out earlier, uh, all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross through the shedding of his blood. Angelic beings needed the truth presented to them, but God didn't need it, did he? Yeah. So, if Christ didn't need to present the truth to God... Why is it Christianity presents Christ as, as having to die for God? Let me, let me make it a little further. Let me tighten it up for you. In the Bible, the Bible uses metaphor oftentimes for truth. Sometimes it uses truth itself, the word truth. But a lot of times it uses metaphor. What are some of the metaphors in the Bible that are used for truth? I'll give you one. Light. Yeah, here you go. Light. What else? Salt. Salt. That's right. Salt is used for truth. What else? Bread. Bread. Used for truth. Wine, the good wine used for truth? Fire, even. Fire? How about a sword? Sword comes out of the mouth, right? The sword. How about blood? Blood. Well, here's, uh, here's one Christian author wrote in the Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 378. In the study of the Bible, the converted soul eats the flesh and drinks the blood of the Son of God, which he himself interprets as receiving and doing his words that are spirit and life. Or here's another book, Christ Object Lessons, page 102. The leaven of truth works a change in the whole man, making the coarse refined, the rough gentle, the selfish generous. By it, the truth, the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now, now who's the only being who didn't need truth presented to him? God. Then if we understand truth is symbolized by blood, we realize God is the only being in the universe who did not need the blood of his son. Yet, Christianity teaches the one place Christ is applying his blood is before the Father in heaven. That's profound. Just let that sink in for a minute. That's huge. Sometimes we think of uh, the blood on the door mantle. The blood on the door mantle. Protected people. Yes, the blood on the door mantle. The angel had to see that. Yeah, the angel had to see that blood. What's the door mantle symbolic of? Entrance to the heart. Yes, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. What door is he knocking upon? Yeah, the door mantle is symbolic of the heart. The blood is symbolic of the truth. So what is being symbolized in what you've described? Those who don't have truth in their heart will die. Those who do have the truth will be healed and restored. Those who don't have the truth we've just gone through are slaves of another system. They're in a terminal condition. They will die from that condition. Those who have the truth have the antidote to that condition and will not die. It's very simple. But yet we have, have been... Remember we talked about earlier here what we're held captive with? Traditions. We have our traditions that it is God who's doing the killing and therefore God must be appeased with the blood of his son. Yes, Wendell. Second Thessalonians 2.10 They perish because they refuse to love the truth. And thus be saved. Yeah, and the word, another word for saved, thus be healed. That's what it means. Sozo. Saved. Healed. Yeah. Um, 
Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh or drink my blood, you have no part with me. So where is Jesus telling us the blood needs to be applied? To his Father or to our hearts and minds? Yeah. And so the, the Colossians text we've already quoted. So heavenly things were reconciled to Christ at the cross through, the shed, through his shed blood. Heavenly beings needed to see the truth about God as revealed in Christ, to see Satan exposed, to see what humanity can be when perfected as God designed and as revealed in Christ. Thus the only being again in the universe who didn't need the cross, not just the blood, but the cross, was God. All the other beings needed it, but not God. And who do we have, and who is Satan focused Christian ta- teaching that the cross was for and all its merits go to the Father. Yes. I'm just saying that when you said it's profound, it's so profoundly wrong to be such a foundational doctrine and it, it brings me amazement to, the, I think it's the text in Isaiah where it says that we would see him is, uh, smitten, smitten by the Father. You know what I'm saying? That it, the prophecy that predicted that this would be... And we would consider it. Yeah, Isaiah 53, 4. Yes, and we would consider the Father had done this. And, exa- and that's exactly what's happened. We've, we're teaching this huge lie. And you wonder why Christ hasn't come yet. Because uh, when, when Christ comes, what's most of the world going to, to do? They're going to run and hide from him. But when the false Messiah comes, wielding power and might to, do, to imprison those who don't do it his way, and I, 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 I wish I wouldn't have to punish you. I love you. I just want you to worship and accept me as your Savior. But if you don't accept me as your Savior, justice requires that I punish you, and you're going to have to go to prison first. And if that doesn't bring you to repentance, then, well, first, you, you won't be able to buy or sell. And, and if that doesn't bring you to repentance, then, then we're going to have to imprison you. And if that doesn't bring you to repentance, well, justice will require I execute you. And the whole world will wonder after the beast. This is our God. We have waited for him. Okay? This is entirely what is being taught from pulpits all over America, including in our own church. And it's, and it's, and it's preparing the world for, for Satan to come impersonating Christ. Yeah, isn't that kind of the concept of the great controversy, too, with Satan's argument that, that God couldn't forgive and with his justice and remit sin and bring people back? And Satan's actually saying that he will not that he must express his justice in, in terms of... Yeah, in, in the book, I think it's Desire of Ages, uh, Satan in the heavens said the law of God could not be obeyed, and if man should transgress the law, um, God could not forgive them. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Yeah. Urged. Urged Satan, yeah. All right, let me, let me go on here. Um, it talks about in the lesson about Christ taking our place, um, and, and he did take our place. He was our substitute. But traditionally, it's, it's, it's substitute in, in, in receiving an, an ex- imposed punishment upon himself. That's not what he did. He took our place to take our condition upon ourselves in order to overcome where we could not, in order to heal. Notice this is out of Derek Flood's book again. It says, and, and he's going to be commenting now on the ch- early church fathers in the first couple of centuries after the cross and what they taught. Now listen to what they taught. For example, Athanasius writes... The death of all was consummated in the Lord's body. Yet because the word was in in it, death and corruption were in the same act utterly abolished. Here we have substitutionary language. The death of all was consummated in the Lord's body. Understood in the context of Christus Victor, resulting in death and corruption being utterly abolished. Notice, he was destroying death and abolishing a corruption. The death sentence is not fulfilled, it is erased. 
Athanasius writes that Christ assumed a human body in order that in it, death might once for all be destroyed and that men might be renewed according to the image of God. Amen. This this is what the early church was teaching, okay? Similarly, Gregory of Nazanzus writes, For my sake he was called a curse, who destroyed my curse. Again, vicarious language, Christ's curse for my sake, is coupled with Christus Victor theme. The curse, that is, the sentence of the law, is destroyed, not satisfied. The, the, The sentence of the law isn't satisfied. The sentence is destroyed. In Christ, you see? Here, the medical paradigm prevalent among the church fathers is helpful. Seen through the lens of the patristics, it's the church fathers, patristics means church fathers, uh, patristics image of salvation as healing, we can think here of a doctor who, while recognizing that certain behaviors can lead to injury and sickness, nonetheless seeks to heal the patient. We have a grave wound, but Christ is is a greater physician. As Augustine puts it, of my own of my own so deadly wound, I should despair unless I could f- find so great a physician. Punitive justice wounds, but restorative justice heals. The purpose of Christ taking on human wretches- wretchedness, suffering, and sin was for the sake of our healing and renewal. Isn't this great stuff? Okay, one more short paragraph. This view of salvation as healing, sanctification, and recreation is captured well by Gregory's well-known formulation. What is not assumed is not healed, but what is united to God is saved. It is succinctly stated in the classic formula of Irenaeus. Remember, we talked about Irenaeus in here before, another church founder. God became what we are, so we could become what he is, Christ-like. See how simple that is? Okay? The Bible says, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the entire purpose of Christ's mission was to restore his creation back into godliness. I just think it's, it's phenomenal. All right, Monday's lesson, top paragraph. It says, when we understand redemption as freedom from, uh, from a form of enslavement that requires external assistance, we may conclude that sinful humanity is bound by a power or influence stronger than itself. The question that needs to be answered is, by what power agency has sinful humanity be bound? How would you answer that now? Bound by lies. Anything else binding you? Our own nature. nature. And then traditions and and, uh, authorities uh, here on earth. Okay? Does God need to have his anger at sin propitiated, assuaged, or in any way mollified? No. God's anger at sin will never change. Never. God's anger at sin is like a doctor's anger or wrath at cancer or Ebola or HIV. Doctors never lose their anger and wrath at disease and will always want to destroy disease. But doctors never want to destroy their patients. You see the difference? God hates sin and will hate it for all eternity. But he never hates the sinner. Huge difference, isn't it? Yes, Wendell. Parents may hate the disease that's destroying their child, but they're never going to be hating their child. That's That's exactly right. Okay, let's go into um, Monday's lesson, top paragraph. It says, oh, we just read that. Okay, we already threw that. Let's see. Oh, here we are. 
Fourth paragraph. What makes it so bad is that it's a slavery not imposed solely from without, rather it's one that comes from within. How are we freed from a slavery, a bondage that originates in us, even in our very nature? Good question, huh? Thoughts about that? How do we experience freedom from temptation that originates within us? We're buried with Christ in, in baptism. We're raised to a new life in him. Meaning, in practical terms... We go through a symbolic washing in a pool with the pastor with his hand over our head saying the right words that somehow we get different motives in our heart? We ask God to come into our lives and to renew the right spirit within us. Let, 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 yeah, I like where you're going. So let's, 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 speak, let's speak some English. Is baptize English? No. No, it's, it's it, it, yeah, baptismo. It's a, it's a transliteration of a Greek word. So what would an English word be? Immersed or submerged, immersed or submerged. Okay, so what now? What is when when you are baptized, immersed into Christ? Remember, baptized into Christ. We hear that as I've gone through a ritual in Christ's name. That's what we hear. Let's put English in there. When I was immersed or submerged into Christ. Wait, does that sound like a ritual? Yeah. What about? Or, yeah, go ahead. What about, oh, I heard a pastor say it once and I loved it. He talked about baptism being dipped into God. Yeah, so what, so, so what about that? So, let's, let's, so do you hear immersed into Christ or submerged into Christ as a ritual? Or does it sound something different? Yeah. You do? I thought, but to me, being dipping your mind into God, being open. Okay, in your, so does dipping your mind into Christ, submerging your mind, like we're going with this, submerging, is that... No, see, it's not ritual. There, okay? No, this is a reality. This is submerging your mind, your character, your individuality, that you are submerged into the reality of God, his character, his nature, his methods. So baptism into Christ is a submerging of your heart, your character, your mind into Christ-likeness, his love, his methods, his motives, the heart being renewed, the circumcision of the heart in the passage earlier, the law written on the heart and mind, the having the mind of Christ. This is all the same. Isn't it the same? By the holy, we become changed. By, well, yeah. And so with that submerging into Christ, then something changes in us. And we will often take a public testimony and we go through a ritual baptism, but the ritual baptism in H2O has no power. No power. The power's in the Holy Spirit. That's, that's, that, that H2O is a metaphor, a symbol, like the lamb is a symbol for Christ. The H2O, the water, is a symbol for the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. that cleanses and immerses and takes all that Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. Yeah, so, so let's be very practical. What are some real actions we can take to experience this victory? Specific choices we can make to experience this type of victory in our life. I've got a list here, and we can go through them. Let this mind be you which was also in Christ Jesus by studying the Word. Okay, so first thing, first thing... Um, can we free ourselves, as we've been asking here, or, or, or is it lessons that we need help from outside ourselves? So the first step is to recognize our own need and problem, isn't it? I mean, sometimes we jump, jump downstream with that. We, we do, but we have to recognize our own need that we have a terminal condition that we did not choose. See, I want to recognize our need in truth because many people recognize their need, but it was like th- that distortion we read last week in Flood's book where he was taught that you were a worm, you're, low, you're, you're no good, you're awful, you're this. No, 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 no. And they have this terrible guilt that they carry around. No. 
It would be like an HIV-infected man and woman get together have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? See, we don't have to feel guilty because we have the condition. We didn't choose it. But just like that baby didn't choose it, does that baby have a condition that if not dealt with, will kill it? That's us too. So we didn't choose this, but we have a condition that is terminal. And, and so a free remedy comes and is offered to that child when that child's old enough to make decisions for itself. And, and it's free. The child can take it, will cure the condition, or the child can reject it. Will that be the child's fault? Yes. That's, our, that's our position. Christ has provided free remedy. And our choice is to partake of Christ and be healed or not. So we have to first recognize our condition, but we don't need to feel guilty about it, right? We need to be real about it. If we want to feel guilt, we should be feeling guilt on, am I rejecting the remedy? Now I need to feel guilty for that. Am I rejecting Christ? Okay? But not for the fact that I have this condition that needs healing. Um, the next thing, of course, then, is we have to, once we recognize we have this problem, we have to find a solution, and we've already talked about the solution is Jesus Christ, and how do we then partake of that solution? And that's what I think where you were getting to. How do we partake of that solution? Thinking his thoughts, meditating on his life. Exactly. So one of the things, through Bible study, we, we read that earlier, we read in the quote earlier, as we study the word, we eat the flesh and drink the blood, which is, you know, so partaking of the word, Bible study. And I, I have three threads that I like to put together a lot in here. One is scripture. The other is science or nature. And so, you know, Paul talks about seeing God operating in science and nature. Christ used lots of parables of nature to teach the kingdoms of God. So we want to bring those principles in so we can learn of God and grow in his goodness there as well and experience, our experience with God. And let me give you some what I mean by experience. Have you ever had the experience of being gracious to someone who was unkind to you. You forgave them without being appeased, without someone pleading with you. You were kind, you were gracious. And have you had the experience of holding resentment and bitterness at someone? Now, do you have an experience? What did those two experiences do in you? You see, you've got some information you can draw from. Have you been on the other side of that coin? You've done someone wrong and you know it, and they were gracious to you versus somebody held resentment to you. What did those two experiences do to you? You see, do you find that, that you can harmonize that experience, go to scripture, go to science, and you can actually find a harmonious understanding? Hey, there's certain methods that are healing and restorative. There are certain methods that are destructive and harmful. So how do we come to know God and his methods better? Study the word. Look to God's methods in nature and science. Check our experience. All three as we grow. And then choose. Go ahead, Wendell. Well, also, it talks about, is this the fast I've chosen to fast? No, to help those. And so our actions actually have beneficial effects on us. The altruism. Those who water themselves will be watered, principle of scripture. The more we give, the more we receive, principle of scripture, God's law of love and action. So we can then choose to begin practicing God's methods, which are reinforcing back on ourselves his, his methods. And we become changed by that, too. Yes. I was thinking the same thing, how that selfishness is changed into selflessness. Exactly. Well said. How about pray and talk to God as a friend? Have conversation. Not just study, but also talk to him. Have the mind open to his spirit. Listen for him to talk back. Is that important? Yeah, often neglected. Often neglected, yeah. How about caring for the spirit temple? In other words, exercise, making sure you get good sleep, eating the right foods. Why do we do this? Because somehow we merit salvation in doing this? Or is it, have you ever noticed if you're sleep-deprived after a call, Wendell, 
it's, and you try to maybe meditate or read the Bible, it's like your mind is in, in, in mud, molasses. You can't quite make that connection like you normally do. Things are slowed down if, you're, if you've been up all night on call. You notice that? It's easier when you're healthy. It's easier when you're healthy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Have you ever had high fever and the flu? <coughs> Do you like to take exams during that time? No, your mind isn't working well. This is why we take care of the spirit temple. Not because we merit something by it, but we put ourselves in a position to understand and grow and make healthier choices. And we take the burdens of temptation off of us. We are less irritable. We're less frustrated. We have less anger to try and restrain when we're at peace and our prefrontal cortexes are well-rested. And we're better able to be of use to others. Yes, absolutely. exactly right. Avoid filling the mind with material that is contrary to God's principles. By beholding, we are changed. Fill the mind with, with worldly principles, we become changed by those principles. So we want to put, you know, what's, what's the passage in Philippians, I think? Whatever is pure, whatever is... Somebody, somebody knows it by heart. What is, how's it go? Okay, nobody does. All right. <laughs> whatever is... Yeah, think on these things. Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) But y'all knew what I meant. All the good stuff. Whatever is true, holy, noble, righteous, pure. Um, Think about these things. Okay? Think for yourself. Here's another one. It's not necessarily written in Scripture exactly. We kind of Paul says it in Romans 14. Let everyone be fully persuaded in their own mind. Think for yourselves. Don't let me or someone else do your thinking for you. I'm here to challenge you to think, give you ideas to process over, but you need to weigh the evidences, come to your own conclusion. Um, and then after examining the evidences in Scripture, in experience, in nature, uh, hearing testimony from other people, you weigh it out, you come to a choice and make a choice to surrender your life to God. Open your heart, invite him in. This is what needs to happen, yes? And then you choose to act upon the truth that is revealed to you. And when you act on the truth that you know that is right for you in this time in your life, you get more truth revealed to you. But you don't get more truth revealed if you're holding up on a point. I know I should, I know I should do this, but I, I'm not ready for that. Basically, you're stalling the process. The Holy Spirit can't take, take you to the next, next step because you haven't done this step yet. You're not ready. You're basically saying, I don't want truth. This is as far as I'm willing to go. I'm not willing to walk with you any farther, Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit pauses and waits with you, waits with you, waits with you, waits with you. As long as you still have a mind that can hear the Spirit, the Spirit will strive with you until the day that you can no longer hear the Spirit. And then you start applying that truth, and your journey moves on. And then don't confuse feelings and temptations with being renewed. Just because you still experience temptation and have troublesome feelings does not mean you're not renewed. Okay? Because people who are renewed in heart, have a right spirit, will still suffer temptation and still go through days where they feel bad. Don't confuse the two. Don't, don't let the devil use those bad down days to insert a lie into your head that questions your salvation and your relationship with God. That would be a distortion. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have made all provisions in Christ for knowing you, being reconciled to you, being transformed back into your image. We thank you that you have given testimony through your scripture, through nature, through experience, through the historic record of the early church fathers, that you came to earth to heal and restore your creation. Lord, we, we are sorry that the church through time has taken on a distorted image of you. We are sorry that we have done such a lousy job as your people telling the world about you. 
We ask not only for your grace and your enabling, but you will open avenues of communication. Bring in people who love this message. May we connect and unite together so that we can be effective in waking up this world to the truth about your character so that your final work can be done and we can see you soon. In your holy name, amen. Amen.